This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Forest Service, part of the Agriculture Department, is in the midst of a 10-year effort to better prevent wildfires, the kinds of seemingly out-of-control blazes that have charred millions of acres out west. With six months until the peak danger season coming up next, we check in with the strategy's team lead, Brian Farabee. Mr. Farabee, good to have you on. Good to be on with you, Tom. Hey, let's talk about this plan. It's known as Confronting the Wildfire Crisis. Uh, tell us about the plan, what it's all about, what it seeks to do. Yes, Tom. Well, good morning again. And the Wildfire Crisis Strategy really is a vision of what it's going to take for us to really have a different experience when it comes to wildfire, both communities, people, and our natural resources. Right now, America's forests are in an emergency crisis when it comes to wildfire. And in order to change that experience, the the strategy lays out the types of efforts we need to take, the scale of the work we need to do, the amount of acres we need to treat in order to change that experience. Yeah, my sense of reading the strategy is that it's primarily aimed at prevention of forest fires and and wildfires, correct? I would say it is an approach to deal with uh, mitigating fuels so that we can reduce maybe in future years the amount of suppression activity that we have to engage in and actually reduce severity of wildfires and how people experience them currently. And when you say mitigating fuels, what does that actually mean? Because the trees themselves are the fuel at some point. That's correct. So um, vegetation management, it means removing different types of vegetation from the American forest, which in turn reduces fuels, which in turn affects fire severity or the severity of a fire. In other words, there's a lot of growth down on the ground that can light up and then therefore transfer to the trees. And so if you get rid of that brush, that type of thing, then that will prevent fires? Correct. Because I've seen that in action once on the East Coast on an island off of North Carolina. There were It's very highly treed, and there were hundreds of piles of brush that were set up, and they were waiting for a truck to take it out of there. I guess that was mitigation. That's correct. Typically what you just um, described is usually the results of us doing mechanical treatments in forested lands, and then we take that byproduct out. We either remove it, as you just suggested, by uh, removing it with trucks, or in many cases, we'll pile it and then burn it. Got it. And is there any, like, vegicidal approach to this, or is it mostly cutting and trimming and removing? There's a number of different activities, uh, and it really does depend on the state of the forest that you're operating in. Many of them will require some type of mechanical treatment that could be commercial timber sale. It could be a non-commercial removal of vegetation and or typically followed up by prescribed burning. You know, most of our forested types have evolved with fire. And so one of the things that science is really showing us now is we need to get fire back in these landscapes to help mitigate the impacts that we're seeing. Right, because fires have been a feature of forests for all of recorded history and way before that, correct? And forests somehow come back from fires stronger in some cases. Correct. Correct. It's a natural part of the regime. And so ecologically, having fire back into these landscapes is very valuable, but not to the severity that we're seeing currently. And do you find that there is sometimes local opposition to that because maybe that brush and undergrowth is someone else's you know, privacy screen and they like the feeling of woods and this kind of thing. Um, that's correct, Tom. Why many people understand the value and importance of managing our American forests. There are some that move to forested areas for just that purpose. 
And um, to see those materials moved is sometimes less desirable. But, you know, typically we can work through that with many of our publics. It's, it's what we talk about in terms of engaging our publics and helping them understand the value and importance of the work while at the same time being able to retain much of what they desire. Sure. Maybe they could put up translucent fiberglass in front of that outdoor shower afterwards. Well, I, I wouldn't suggest that, that that's a mitigation measure of ours. <laughs> All right. We're speaking with Brian Farabee. He's team lead for the Confronting the Wildfire Crisis Plan at the U.S. Forest Service. And under the plan, what is the responsibility of the federal government, of the of the Agriculture Department, and what do you try to have local, state, you know, people participate in? So our strategy indicates that uh, in order to address this current situation that we're experiencing at scale, that we need to treat, you know, approximately 50 million acres, 20 million on national forests, and 30 million on others, uh, federal, state, tribal, and private lands. And so it really is a all lands issue. It really is a American forest issue. And so it takes the collective us to come together with our resources and our skills and to prioritize and to implement. And that is really what we are working on and hope to continue to see great progress going forth. It's accurate to say that the state, tribal, privately held lands, forest lands, are contiguous with the U.S. federal owned. So it's really, in that sense, one big forest. That's correct. And as you well know, you know, wildfires know no boundary, which is why it really is an all-lands approach that we want to take to this work. And under this plan, is your metric for progress the number of treated acres, or, or is there some other measure? You know, we're looking at acres treated, but more importantly, we're trying to look at how we mitigate exposure to communities to values that people care about, like recreational facilities, wildlife habitat, water sources, utility corridors, and utility lines. And so it really is trying to mitigate the effects to wildfire on these lands, because we know we will continue to experience wildfires. But if we can reduce the severity of them and the effects of them, that is really what we're striving uh, to do with our partners. So would it be accurate to say, yes, you understand that the forest can survive and prosper after the fire. You just don't want the fire to take homes, playgrounds, utilities, infrastructure with it. That's correct. But also in certain situations where it is so so severe, where it burns not only the existing stands of, of timber, but it also burns the seed sources and it creates such a disturbance to soil that after a fire, we see significant erosion. And so it can be to the point where it's devastating, even to natural resources. Where are we in this 10-year plan? And my follow-on question will be, shouldn't this be an effort that goes on forever? So to the first part of your question, we're in year two of the plan. And we're excited about it because 2002 was really our initiation, kind of our ramp-up year. And um we're really excited about moving into year two with the work that we have planned and laid out. And as you suggested, Tom, once we get these stands into a condition that we feel comfortable with, we will then move into what we call a maintenance mode, whereas you'll have to get on a cycle. In some cases, it's five years. In some cases, it could be up to 10 years where you go back in and do similar activities. And so you're never done. It is definitely activities that occur 
you know, forever, essentially. And the goal, though, is that 50 million acres eventually to be all treated, then it becomes maintenance mode depending on where and when. That's correct. While at the same time, keeping many of the other forested stands that aren't in this severe situation right now in a maintenance mode as well. And by the way, this is not just a West Coast issue, is it? No, it's, it is across the United States. However, the vast majority of the issue is out West. All right. And now the USDA, the Forest Service, has deployed a kind of interactive map that people can see what's going on. Tell us how that came about and what you can see on the map. So the interactive map came about as a result of us having a number of engagements with our external partners, both at a national level and at a regional level. And one of the things that we heard constantly from those participants were, we would like to be able to see what you're doing, where you're working, really just show us information to be more transparent. So we developed this interactive web-based tool that is available to the public, to NGOs, to congressional members, to even our, our own employees. And what it depicts is it shows you, it talks a little bit about the wildfire crisis strategy, and then it shows where we're investing. It shows the amount we invest in each landscape. It then shows the type of work that's going on in the landscapes, the progress being made in these landscapes. And in some instances, it'll show uh, preconditions and post-activity conditions so people can really see uh, the kind of work that's taking place and needs to take place out on the landscape. And by the way, I imagine that over the long term, this whole effort puts less pressure on the federal, state, and local firefighting teams that are the ones that have to deal with the fires when they do break out. We've seen some pretty big pressure there. So we, we believe that if we, are really, if we really are able to achieve our goals and the strategy with our partners, it will help us with suppression activities, both from the standpoint of firefighter safety and the severity of which they experience wildfires currently. And just a final question, is there a lot of negotiations involved in the establishing of these mitigation areas and activities? Just to put it bluntly, on the one hand, you've got the tree huggers. On the other hand, you've got the loggers that want to cut down everything. I know I'm exaggerating. But you've got to navigate the various interests and values that people have in a given area to be able to effectuate this? You know, we do have a number of different interests that we experience in these respective geographical areas. And our approach has always been to take a collaborative approach, you know, to bring those key, important, critical, interested stakeholders together and see if we can come to some type of agreement or resolution about what level of activity will take place and where. And we've been pretty successful at that. And I think this day and age, I think all of us understand we need to take action. We need to have active management, but we may not necessarily all get what we desire. Brian Farabee is team lead for the Confronting the Wildfire Crisis Plan at the U.S. Forest Service. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the plan at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get-involved.
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics, I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually, usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, you know, and I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see, you know, throw, uh, send in my information and lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and, um, I learn uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit, uh, from the athletes of special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, 
I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful. And, and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the at special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics. And, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of special olympics for themselves i i I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference how how do we get how can listeners get involved in special olympics ways to get involved uh, tons of ways so uh volunteers obviously coaches officials uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast. How long does it take to tackle a home project? With Angie, you could cross it off your list before this ad is over. Just tell us what you need, indoor or outdoor, repair or redesign, and we handle the rest, sending a top pro to get it done. You don't have to lift a finger, except to tap the screen or click the mouse. Plus, Angie is free to use. So bring us your next home project and we'll bring it home. 
Download the app or go to Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com to get started.